This is a Founding Media podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by our friends at Traverse Legal. They were helpful as we started Founding Media and the podcast network. With a focus on utilizing technology to better deliver IP and business law services to founders, startups, and emerging growth companies, Traverse Legal has been changing the way law is practiced since 2004. Traverse Legal's latest offering, Traverse GC, provides a monthly fixed-fee fractional general counsel offering to companies. Learn more by visiting TraverseLegal.com. Welcome to the View from Venus podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Hamilton Lynn. This week, we are featuring Alexis Jones. Alexis was one of Oprah's Super Soul 100 and is the founder of I Am That Girl and Protect Her. She's a motivational speaker, author, activist, and media personality. Her list of accolades and accomplishments just keeps growing. Let's jump in and hear more from Alexis. I am here with my guest, Alexis Jones. And I was thinking about you today, and uh, full disclosure for my View from Venus podcast, I have known Alexis since she was very young, and she was my son's high school prom date. I know, Jimmy Hamilton, Jimmy glory Hamilton. days. And I, I was that guy. extremely proud of you and everything that you've done. But when I was looking at it and reading all about all your honors and everything that you've done, I thought, why should people listen to a podcast with Alexis? Jones. So I wanted to list the people that do do listen to you. The NFL, Google, NCAA Division I college football and other sports, Netflix, Dell, Pepsi, Nike, and the United Nations, not to mention Oprah. How about that? That's pretty impressive. I feel very overwhelmed now. Now I'm like, I have to be articulate and funny and charming. And you are all those things. Oh. But before you were all those things, you were on Survivor. So I think we have to start with the question everybody wants to know. How was that experience and was Survivor, is it real? Do, oh. do you really eat eat like Oh, I tell people they stuff? would never show what really goes down because it wouldn't be entertainment. It's a hundred times more real than anything that they show on TV. So it's worse? It's a hundred times worse than anything they show on TV. Yeah, I mean, they didn't show any of like the crises, um, especially for me. I, I broke my hand on, gosh, on our first challenge. They didn't, they didn't, they edited that out. I macheted my foot on day 19. They edited that out. Um, I was the only contestant that got stung by one of the world's most poisonous scorpions three different times, edited all three of those times out. And then I blew out my my knee on day 31 and they edited that out. So I was like, what? Like, And whenever you see it, torrential rain pour, you know, and then two minutes later, it's like, and then there's the rainbow. For us, you know, those storms would last 17 hours. So, I mean, it's, it's hard when you put, you know, it really is, you're taking city slickers and you're putting them out in the middle of nowhere and asking them to survive. And it is so brutal. And there's so many things I'm not going to tell you because it is disgusting and gross about sanitation and hygiene and that, yeah, it's, um, it was really hard. It was brutal. So 
after surviving that, you felt you felt like you could do anything. Um, and so I want to go right into kind of your entrepreneurial journey a little bit because that's what this podcast is about. So through, you say, innovation, authenticity, and kindness, and I love the fact that you include kindness, you are all you started out all about empowering women. So while you were still at USC, you founded is it I am that girl? Mm-hmm. I am that girl. Tell me a little bit about that and why you started it there and then. Sure. I mean, what I love about getting to have this conversation with you is because you've known me forever. So since I, I was just a young buck and um, growing up in Westlake was was really challenging because it, w- it was a very wealthy um, school, wealthy environment. And I think that I probably had all the normal teenager insecurities. Um, and I think those were really kind of exacerbated by the fact that I lived in this very wealthy community. It's but a my bubble. family It's a, it's I a, mean, total, it's a bubble. total bubble. And it's still is. Yeah. And um, and yet my family wasn't wealthy. And so it was just kind of this like glaringly obvious thing that just kind of made all my insecurities even more. And so when I got a scholarship and I moved out to California and I went to USC, I realized that I was then going to, you know, top three most expensive private schools in the country. Thank God I got a scholarship. But I mean, it just it was Westlake on steroids. Um, because it was the same environment. It was people who could afford that kind of tuition. And so again, now I'm displaced. Now I'm living in California. I don't really know anyone. I only know a handful of people. Um, And so I remember sitting down with six girls in my sorority. And I said, um, we have a lot of conversations about things that don't matter, like clothes and shoes and movies and boys and, and guys yeah. you know like all of it and and I said and it's amazing it's such a luxury of a first world um but w- what if what if we had conversations about things that did matter would you come and would that be interesting and they said well what do you mean and and I started talking about my fears and my doubts and my insecurities and um the things I woke up with that morning struggling with um and also my hopes and my dreams and my aspirations and everything in between and and they said, yes, absolutely. We would we would love. We would show up for that. And I said, great. And so that first meeting, um, those six girls showed up. And six meetings later, we had 347 girls showing up. Wow. And we kept outgrowing, like, venue after venue after venue um, at USC. And finally, you know, at a certain point, you know, it's it, teachers are coming in being like, what is this? This isn't a, an actual class. And I was like, this is real life 101. <laughs> like, Well, and it was something that was born— I think, from what you've told me from the very beginning when we first talked about it, of a kind of unacknowledged need. Yes. It was something that was always below the surface that needed to be, needed someone to bring it up to give it air, and you did yeah. that. And I think especially as women, because it, we're not we're not born threatened by each other as women. I think that is a very learned behavior, and I think that is a cultural script that is handed to us from such a young age, and then we adopt it as truth. And so the other thing is that so often I feel like in these situations we can find ourselves as women walking into to situations, and it, obviously at that moment for me at the college level, walking into classrooms, walking into parties, walking, and all of a sudden like sizing up all the other girls and not realizing that we are all perfectly wonderful flawed and we all walk around with that is like the glue that holds humanity together is that we all have these fears and doubts and insecurities and we just had nowhere to talk about it and we had nowhere to ask the hard questions and we had nowhere to take our frustrations um you know whether it was with the environment or politics or our own body or um the relationship that we were in um it was a safe place where we could put our guards down and um we could come honestly 
And my one rule in these in these little groups that were coming together was that, um, you know, I want everyone to feel seen and heard, and I want them to feel like they belong. Um, and these weren't girls that would necessarily be friends otherwise, but they knew that when they walked in, that the baggage of what we've been told of these are the visible and invisible limitations of women don't exist here. And in this space, we have permission to be fully honest and fully seen um, and to dream as as and huge as imagined. No judgments. You know, and sometimes when a girl is like starts bawling and it was amazing because like this is our default setting yeah. as little girls. Like, you know, when you're when you're a couple years old, it's so easy to walk up to someone and be like, hey, I want to be your friend. You know, I like you. Yeah. You know, I like your backpack. Can we be friends? Um, and then we get into this weird adulting where like that's not appropriate anymore. We're playing cool. Um, and, in, and in that space, there was no playing cool. It was, I'm going to show up, um, and sometimes I'm going to be awesome, and sometimes I'm going to be just struggling, you know, to get here, um, and I get to be all of it. That's wonderful. So take me from that Mm -hmm. to today, 1.2 million different members, I I assume, and 24 countries. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always the— the Frankenstein of its own, right? That's always kind of the impetus is, is when you have the courage to put something out into the world um, and just say this needs to be, this needs to exist. And then it's its own beautiful entity. And, of course, you know, the kind of the funny thing, the backstory that a lot of people don't necessarily know is that I and that girl was built off of 23 interns that were working out of my apartment. So you talk about, like, badass girl power. And that's while you were still at USC. Yep, that's why I was still at USC as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put out this Craigslist ad, and it was like, if you want to change the world and you <laughs> want to fight for girls and you want to not get paid and do insane hours and, like, all these things. And I kept thinking, oh, it'd be so great if I had one intern, you know, if one person <laughs> responds to this Craigslist ad. And I was in shock within 24 hours. It was hundreds of girls reaching out and and valedictorians of Ivy Leagues saying, I, you know, I will move to LA. This is exactly. And so I always say that there's this irony about millennials and and being a millennial um, in that we're often criticized for being the world's most entitled generation. Um, And I'm a hopeless optimist. So I always take the slant of that's a great thing um, in that you have a generation who is the audacity to think that they could actually change the world. Um, and so for me, seeing all these girls showing up being like, absolutely, you know, and so I, I tried to look professional. I think I put on some like cheesy suit and I showed up in, <laughs> in coffee bean, uh, to do my quote unquote interviews. And, um, they were, they were just so overly qualified for this. Um, and so I ended up hiring 23 of them and I put them in different departments and it, it was in my living room. And so, you know, I would call a meeting, I would sit in the middle of the living room and I would call a meeting and I would say like, okay, our three girls from accounting, I need accounting over here. And they would meet me in the middle and then I'd say, I need our marketing team. And then they would meet me, the, you know, and the amazing thing, um, and looking back, those really are like glory years, um, because, you know, it was the hustle. It was well. We'll talk later. I need that Craigslist ad. Oh gosh, uh, I gotta find it. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's something. I have some interest in mm-hmm. that. So the movement was to inspire girls. You say to be love and express exactly who they are, and um, from that, you it's grown tremendously. I mean, you're associated now with, um, I guess, 
I don't know. You've got, there's a huge team. I looked at yeah. it online today. Yeah, um, it's an amazing team, and the team is always evolving. Um, people coming and going and, and adding their little bits of flair and their magic. And again, it's also a testament to what happens when extraordinary people come together. Um, and did it spread kind of organically? How did you end up oh, yeah. in 24 different countries? Um, very organically. I think it's also a testament to um, our influencers who've been involved just because they're such incredible spokespeople and people who are always, you know, speaking on behalf of the organization and showing up at events and writing forwards to my book. So really grateful for that. But it, again, I, I think it's one of those things that when you ask the question of like, how did this video go viral? Like you really, it is this like intangible force that it had. And maybe, you know, you give a spark and then just this bonfire erupts. And that's what it always felt like with I Am That Girl was, you know, I was about one girl um, who realized more than anything that I needed something that didn't exist. Um, and sometimes we think that is selfish, that we're like, I'm going to go and change the world. And whenever I give any talks anywhere, <laughs> I'm always telling people, like, stop changing the world. Just change your own. Just fix your own. Just heal yours. Just do what brings you the most joy. Um, and then you have a shot at doing something extraordinary. And I am that girl, certainly that. I want to talk to you a little bit about something that was near and dear to my heart, your work, which which plays into I Am That Girl, your work with Lizzie. Mm, uh, Lizzie Vasquez, who, for people who don't know that are listening to the podcast, um, was bullied online and called the ugliest woman in the world when she really had a medical condition where she could not gain weight. And from there, uh, she did an extraordinary TED Talk, and you were— also instrumental in the documentary, which was wonderful about her. But talk to me a little bit about Lizzie and the bullying and how that came from a lot of your experience with I Am That Girl as well as with as your personal relationship with her. Sure. Um, that was at a time where I'd taken a sabbatical from I Am That Girl to write the book, um, also called I Am That Girl. And um, I also around that time fell in love with a lovely fellow that you also know that we grew up with, Bradley Buckman. Um, and that was kind of a moment where I was deciding at the time I was living in L.A. I'm obviously from Austin. And it was like, am I going to move back to Austin? If I am, what am I going to do? And so I phoned one of my very best friends, Sarah Bordeaux. Um, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about organizing a TED event for Austin, a TED women event, because we've never had one. Um, would you want to be involved? Would you want to produce it? And she said, great. Um, so like about this time next year, and I said, oh, no, it's in like, you know, 64 days or like something insane, you know, to raise the money, right. to put on an event, you know. And she was like, are you crazy? And quickly followed up by, are you crazy? Yes, you are. Of course you are, because so am I. And absolutely, we have to do this. And so then it was, I was in charge of curating the speakers. And that was when I found Lizzie. Um, and I'd read about her story, and uh, I got on Skype with her and immediately fell in love with her because, to your point, it was so in alignment with the work that I've been doing with I Am That Girl because one of the biggest challenges you can imagine within girl world is bullying. Um, and bullying has gotten so sophisticated now given technology. Cyberbullying, yeah. Cyberbullying specifically. And it's something that a lot of parents actually can't really understand the gravitas um, and and the impact um, that it has um, on young people's lives right now. Because bullying used to happen out, you know, in on the playground, you know, or at school, and you got right. to come home and you had a reprieve from it, right? And then you'd have to, like, muster up the courage to go back to school to face your bullies. And, and even that isn't healthy for any child to be in that ecosystem. But what's so hard about cyberbullying today, using technology as a way to bully, um, is one, anonymity, is that you no longer have to um, face the person that you're bullying, which from a whole medical statistical standpoint actually has been proven that you can be exponentially more vicious. You say things that you would never have 
the courage to say to someone's right. face using, you know, getting to having having the luxury to hide behind a screen. Um, so that's one aspect. And, and that coupled with the fact that it's 24-7, um, that children really can't get away from it. Um, and so they're being attacked, um, especially when it's coming from so many people, um, in a way that they can't even really defend themselves. Um, and so for me, seeing this really intimately and being a quote-unquote expert on cyberbullying and being called into all these conferences and speaking on behalf of girls um, everywhere, of course, when I saw Lizzie's message and how she overcame it and how she continued to overcome it, um, both physically when she's out and about, um, but also the way that she combated it online which, with such grace and strength and humor. She's hilarious. I was not expecting her to be as wildly inappropriate. I have a very inappropriate sense of humor, and so does she. And so we really bonded over that. But um, it was a no-brainer. Um, of course, again, one of those, we invited her um, to speak. Sarah the, made a very last-minute decision to have her actually finish um, our, our TED Talk that entire day with Lizzie, and it was the perfect right decision. And of course, she got a standing ovation. We never could have anticipated that she was going to get 10 million plus views. Um, not that we were surprised, right. but again, you can't manufacture this kind of stuff. And so again, it was a, it was a reminder that that message of kindness um, was resonating and that you don't have to have the same condition. I think there's only six people in the entire world who have her condition of inability to gain weight. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's only six people who even kind of look like her um, in the world. And so she is incredibly unique in that sense. Um, but to see her choose to have ownership over her life um, and more than anything for me to realize that the irony of her being called those horrible things online, the irony of that is that she genuinely is one of the most beautiful people that I've ever she met. She is. She is. And inside any, and out. In, Infectious. I mean, she is just one of those girls that you and meet she and you laughs, hug. Oh, you just melt. You just melt. Everyone wants a best friend that's like Lizzie. Um, so great. she was the poster girl for me of choosing to be kind in a sometimes cruel world. Um, and, and selfishly, I needed her to be out in the world doing the work that she was doing, amplifying her message. Well, and you amplified it through the documentary as well. You were executive producer. And we you mentioned briefly just a minute ago another one of my favorite people, Sarah. So talk to me a little bit about what it means to have a partner that's also a best friend as far as in, in an entrepreneurial journey, it seems to be very important. Yeah. I mean, I think so many things. Sarah is is... I mean, she's more than a best friend. She's more than one of my bridesmaids. She's more than um, a sister um, or mentor. I mean, she plays so many of these roles in my life. She's just a couple more years older than me that it always seems like she's just past that chapter mm -hmm. in her life. Um, and she's given me so much wisdom over the years and really ushered me into finding my own voice um, and figuring out uh, who I want to be in this world and how um, how I want to do the things that really um, make my my heart light up. Um, and so I think it's it's really unique. I think she and I have an incredibly rare relationship. And one of the things that she's done such a great job, specifically entrepreneurially, um, is that she insists on radical candor. Um, and I think it's what's allowed us to work so well together, especially as women, because, again, it's one of those – 
ecosystems, it's already it already sets us up to fail, right? The minute that you're like, oh, two best friends are working together on a project, and who's going to get more credit, and who's going to, you know, all that stuff. And well, observing the two of you together, I never I never saw that ever. Well, and and I think that she and I are both so intentional, not only about that, but we have so much reverence for one another, and we recognize each other's strengths, and we simultaneously recognize each other's weaknesses. Well, and you have a lot of respect for each other. Mm-hmm. I've seen you listen to her. I've seen her listen to you. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think it's being able to also have a relationship with yourself to recognize when you're operating out of ego. Because it's not if, right? It's when you you kind of default set right. into something. And so for her, it was always if we have those moments, and even though it sounds crazy and even though there's shame, right, associated with like, oh, my gosh, is she getting more credit or is she getting more interviews than me? Or, you know, we were like, here's the thing based off of Brene Brown because we're both obsessed with her right. um, is we're just going to speak it out loud, even if it feels embarrassing, even if it feels stupid, even if if whatever, even the the craziest things you can imagine of like, I feel like you don't even want to support me and you just want all the credit (laughs) for everything, which I know is a lie. I know it's not true. But it's like, we would just have this practice where we can say that to each other. I know that this isn't, this is my stuff. This is my baggage showing up for me and my insecurities, but this is how I'm feeling. And there was always space to honor that and to say, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, let me break down. Of course, I would never intentionally make you feel this way, you know? And so there was just so much dialogue. And I think regardless of female-female relationships professionally or personally, um, I don't—I think it makes it harder because of how we've been programmed as women to, like, always be nice and err on the side of, I just don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And oftentimes— Well, and we talk, too. Yeah. You know, we don't stuff it a lot. Yeah. You know, we talk, which men a lot of times will stuff it, and then it all comes out at once. Sure. But— one thing I think with, you know, in my old age, learning about ego is I, I have learned to stop myself if I am hurt, angry, or afraid. Mm. Because if I'm if I'm feeling those things, it means ego's involved. Sure. That's the, so good. I'm like, have to write that down after. You have to remember <laughs> to tell me that so I can write that down after. That's so good. I do the same thing. I'm like, am I hungry or tired right now when I'm like yeah. fighting with my husband? I'm like, oh, wait, babe, I'm not even mad at you. I'm just really hungry. Um, no, that's it. But it's that kind of self-awareness. Um, and again, I mean, Sarah is like the queen of this is just, I mean, she models this so effortlessly is being able to dip down into that and to say, can we pause for a second? I can tell this conversation is charged. I want to know what it's really about because it's never about the stuff that you're talking about. No, it's not. And and half the time it's not about you. Yeah. So in 2014, skipping ahead, you had um, sort of, I think I I call it an appointment with destiny. You were asked to speak to the top, were they 12 high school quarterbacks in the United States about respecting women and had an aha moment, which became Protect Her. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that. I always refer to Protect Her as um, this is what happens when you say yes to the universe. This is what happens when God opens up a door and you're like, uh, he's like, all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is walk through. Um, that's what this represented. Because to your point, I've been doing girl empowerment for over a decade. Um, and that was really my niche. It was where I was super comfortable. It's where I'd worked really hard um, and felt really good about uh, the work that I was doing. And then Trent Dilfer and Yogi Roth, a commentator for um, for ESPN for a long time, and Yogi's wa- Yogi was a quarterbacks coach at USC and one of my dearest friends in grad school. So two incredible men that I love, that I respect, um, called me and said, um, is there any way that you'd come and give you know the top quarterbacks in the country um, a conversation about 
respecting women. And at first I kind of laughed. And this is what's also funny is when you're like, wait, wh- why? Like, why me? <laughs> like, should you? You know, and, and Yogi was like, are you kidding, Jones? Because one, no one knows football better than you. You grew up with four older brothers. You're from Texas. Like, you're best friends with our quarterback at USC. You know, like, no one is a diehard, you know, football fan like you and knows football better. He was like, but also, like, all the work that you do with I and that girl, um, like, you, you, there's an urgency for you. Um, and you have a name and a face and a story for every time people talk about these girls in theory, and I'm giving you direct access um, to changing the game in a completely different way by identifying the influencers in the game. Um, And, I mean, how do you say no to that, right? I was like, "Uh, okay, great. And then the funny backstory that no one really knows is – I ended up, uh, my flight ends up getting delayed. I end up showing up. And by the way, it's like such a classic guy thing, right? They give me zero notice. They're like, by the way, can we fly you out in like three days? And I was like, oh, for a talk I've never given, for a demographic I've never spoken to, I have no content, I have no talk. Like, I need actual prep time. Uh, And I was at my best friend's wedding at the time in Canada. And so they flew me out. I was thinking, well, at least I'll have a day to put together all this stuff. And I land that night after, um, I didn't get into like midnight, and I check my phone, turn my phone on. I wasn't supposed to go until 4 p.m. that next day. So I was like, I'm going to wake up at 6. I'm going to have all day yeah, the 6 to prep. call. And uh, when I landed, I have a, um, a missed call from Yogi. He was like, hey, by the way, um, just a heads up, we've moved you to the 7 a.m. slot. Um, and so Trent wants to have breakfast with you at 6 a.m. And I'm like, clearly these men do not understand hair and makeup, right? I mean, things need to happen <laughs> if I'm about to be on camera for television. Like, that alone. And I just remember calling my husband and, like, I, I started bawling. And I was like, I can't do this. I have to make up an excuse. I'm going to say I got in a car accident. He was like, you don't even have a car. I was like, good point. Terrible. So, like, I have to come up with something better than that. But I was so scared because um, I just didn't feel like I was like I was ready or prepped or anything. And um, and my husband said, just get up there and talk. Uh, and talk and speak from the heart and say why this matters. And then he did give me one little pointer, which changed the game is he said, do you know what boys are going to be, what young men are going to be in the room? And I said, I do. And he said, well, if I were you, I would pull pictures of their sisters and moms and girlfriends, and I'd put it in your presentation. I remember you told me that. And um, and my husband, being a professional athlete for nine years, um, he was like, we've heard this talk from every which way. They bring in officers. We've heard our head coach say, if you ever, you know, and and he said, it's really, I've, I've never heard of a girl coming in and talking about this. He said, but you're going to immediately reframe it. Um, You're not talking about girls in theory. You're not talking about the hot sorority girls that they're trying to hook up with. You are talking about the women and the girls that they love and that they respect the most. And if you can tie it back to that, um, and not that you should have to, right? I mean, just this idea like everyone should be treated with dignity and respect, but that's not the culture we live in. But when you first told me this and I first saw the pictures— I mean, you know, you know how much I care about you and I love you. And I looked at the pictures and I thought, does she not even get that the first thing they're doing is looking at her and thinking they want to nail her? Because she's beautiful. She's hot. You know, she's funny. She's all the things. And I thought, you know, how to get their minds off of your physical presence and onto what they're really needing to talk about or what they're really needing to think about. Just that, just reframing Mm -hmm. that. You had that hurdle to go over. Mm Before they even would listen, because they were looking first. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Sure, sure. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, and, and I would say that what shocked me when you said, you know, that was an aha moment for me, what shocked me was, you know, 10 minutes into the talk after showing their sisters, and I memorized their names, so I was like, you know, this is who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jenny, and I'm talking about Laura, and I'm talking about Janae, and, you know, um, was how quickly their body language went Shifting. from like, oh, I'm relaxed, leaning back, maybe even giving eyes of like... So, girl, right, to immediately sitting straight up in their seats, like full attention, like, oh, you're talking about my people now. Um, And, you know, I always say like half the guys started tearing up. Um, And that caught me so off guard that I was not prepared for such an emotional um, and visceral reaction um, to this conversation. Because like you said, I just got up and and, you you start talking about stats and you start filling their faces in with those stats. Um, And see, I think if you had stood up there first and said one one in five, which I think the number is much higher. One in five girls supposedly is sexually assaulted when they go to college or, or has some form of sexual assault that happens when they go to college. I, th- I personally think the number is much, much So that's based off of what higher. we know. So right. there are two stats. Some say one in five. Some say one in four. But both of those stats are based off of only 20 percent of girls who will ever say anything. Who will report. Sure. Exactly. So when you do the actual math, I mean, you're talking about more than one in two. Do you know that I just read a statistic which scared me um, from Safe Place that said only 6% of women in Texas report? 6%. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to protect her. Mm-hmm. So you went from that talk to knowing from what you told me to knowing this was another another unmet need, sure. something else that needed to be addressed. And you put together Protect Her and began to speak to entire teams for the D1 Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Well, again, this is kind of that divine intervention, but um, what ended up happening was when everything went down with Ray Rice, and that was this very viral video, um, and it got a lot of attention, and suddenly um, sexual assault and domestic abuse was the number one trending um, issue on on social media. And um, this video aired on ESPNU the next week. And so it was like right in the midst, and this is before Me Too and Time's Up, and it's so funny how many people are like, oh, so you started this with the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement. And I was like, no, this is five years ago. Um, And it was divine timing was all of a sudden I was that girl on TV having tough love conversations with young men about why why it matters so much um, that they respect and protect and uplift and encourage um, the girls and women in their life. And and really, it was kind of a paradigm shift, um, you know, as as a feminist and as someone who was raised by feminists and my grandmother, you know, just these right. powerful, strong, unapologetic women um, that my kind of epiphany was also around, wow, we're really missing the boat to not include half this guy. Like, we're really missing the boat to not include half of humanity into this conversation um, because we actually need them. And it takes a lot of humility to say, we're not going anywhere. Like, we're not pushing humanity forward um, unless we can get everyone on board with this. Um, And then what I found was, you know, it's so easy to highlight the guys doing it wrong. Um, It's salacious, right? Um, It gets clicks. People love it as headlines. Um, But I will say, having spent the past five years now building Protector and speaking in locker rooms and what very quickly when Me Too and Time's Up came out, um, suddenly I was being hired by Google and Dell and, you know, all of the, like, corporate was having problems. Because, of course, this isn't a locker room problem. It's not a university problem. 
problem. It's a cultural systemic problem, so it's showing up everywhere. So all of a sudden, what started as, oh, I'm going to create this content, um, of course, which I uh, hired Sarah Bordeaux uh, to produce an incredible documentary, 52-minute documentary and um, companion curriculum for it. Um, But what started is, oh, Protect Her is just for, like, male athletes in a locker room. All of a sudden became a much bigger conversation um, that was— how do you be a good human today? Right. Um, because this isn't, it's not just about her, right? It's about how are we teaching people in all ecosystems to treat to treat all humans with dignity and respect. Um, and so then my work was really cut out for me, you know, because all of a sudden West Point is is calling and, you know, they'd never had a female speaker in the history of West Point. I mean, how long, how many hundreds of years <laughs> yeah. come in and speak on this topic? And um, and so all of a sudden it was interesting be a wom- being a woman who was suddenly seeing a lot of firsts. The first time that this happened, the first time I was invited into this room, into this room. But I think that was because of the paradigm shift that you had uh, when you realized that if you're going to teach men to respect women, they have to respect themselves first because their disrespect of women to me comes from their disrespect of themselves. Of they wouldn't do that if they didn't, you know, if they respected themselves, they would never do that. That's the first thing. And the second thing is... When when you shifted from shame and blame mm-hmm. to including them in the conversation, because I think that you said one time shame has never been an agent for change. Sure. It's just not effective. And if that's what we're really after. And so I've sat in so many rooms in which women are angry. And by the way, it's justifiable. It's right, righteous anger. It's understandable. Yes. Right. And and because we have to honor that, we need to create space for that and we have to figure out how to how to help heal that and not just an in individual women. I mean, as collective femininity, we have to figure out how to like love women back to life. And simultaneously, if our end goal is we want to see violence against women going down, we want to see sexual assault numbers going down. We want to eradicate. I mean, not just going down in a utopia. We want this stuff eradicated. Um, again, it comes back to, to practicality. And that is where I'm able to um, separate the, the emotional side and go into kind of the social scientist that I am and to really understand that if what we really want, if that's our end goal, then purely from a data standpoint, we've never seen any kind of behavioral changes that have been effective using shame, blaming or anger. Um, and so figuring out, OK, you know, we need to we need to use a different technique. And in the different circles um, that I had the privilege of being in with women who are twice my age, when we first started talking about this, it felt very um, they were like, what? What do you mean you want to include men? And I said, I just think as women, if we had the humility to recognize that what we've been doing isn't working. Right. Can we start from that place? Because, again, you know, we're talking one in four, one in five. And if we know that's. Less than 20% of the girls report. I mean, whatever we've been doing isn't working. So let's just try this. And if this doesn't work, great. We can, you know, we can throw it out as well. But what I'm finding is in the midst of, yes, there are bad apples, but I was in awe. And this is where I was like, my hope was just blown up was I could not believe how many men were reaching out to me. I couldn't, good men saying, how do I get on board? This is amazing. This is the first time I've ever like not felt embarrassed or ashamed just to be a man. Like I may not be perfect, but I try really hard and I love my mom and my girlfriend is the best and how can I love her better? And I was blown away by the volume Um, and, you know, anywhere from high school boys being like, how can I be a better influence on my basketball team Um, to CEOs, you know, running hundreds of million dollars worth of companies and saying, you know, I really care about 
about this and I have daughters and I want to know what I can do um, to Russell Wilson reaching out, you know, <laughs> and saying, I love my wife. I want to teach my son how to be a protector. How do I get on board? How do I do this? Um, so I think for me, it was they've been awaiting the invitation. They've been awaiting um, the, hey, you can come sit at our table. Um, and not only can you, but we want you to. And we need you because this is a complex issue. Um, and it is going to take all of us if we're going to see any kind of change in treatment of women, which, of course, the intersectionality of we can't talk about women without talking about Black Lives Matters, without talking about the treatment of the LGBTQ Absolutely. community and immigration. Like, this is a conversation of— Which leads to your be a human. Yeah, be a good human um, is, you know, kind of to me the next evolution. It's not about gender. It's not about sex. It's not about religion or ethnicity or nationality or age. Or the way you look. Or the way you look. Um, The idea of being a good human is how do we come back to the basics? And I think that's the other thing is it's not about teaching anyone anything. It's like how do we revert back to, you know, the little kid inside of us who didn't know that any of that stuff existed? Um, and what does it mean to be a good human? And, and how do we inject more compassion and kindness where we see criticism and shame? Um, and, and I think being able to have really thoughtful conversations about intentionally creating those kinds of ecosystems from schools to organizations to company culture, um, I think that's the stuff that really excites me. Well, I know you're a complete optimist. We, we, we talk about that a lot. Um, between the two of us, we talk about how sometimes we get knocked down with our optimism, and especially with things that are happening now, especially with some of the talk that's gone on and some of the disrespect for women. How do you deal with that now as far as—I'm sure you get questions. I'm sure you sure, must. Of course. Um, I think that depending on the day, I handle it better than other. You know, and I think that's part of it is like when you're— an optimist by oh, sure. trade. You're human. You it, know you're human. It has to irritate you and it has to make you angry to hear some of the things. Sometimes I just sit there and go, I can't believe this. Mm-hmm. I burned my bra. I chained myself to tanks. <laughs> I thought I was done. And now we're starting. To me, in some, sometimes I get frustrated because I think we're starting all over again. But we're not. Yeah. I, I, we never are. But I, I can imagine that sentiment. I think my mom has a very similar sentiment of like, what? I thought we were past this. Um, and and life is funny, right? And humanity is funny because it's always three steps forwards, two steps back, three to the side. Um, and I think for me, like I said, depending on the day, there are days where I my eternal optimism can outweigh um, whatever kind of negativity um, that I'm seeing out in the world. And, you know, I can like, my mom always says like a duck, I can, it can roll off my back and I can be like, oh, another idiot saying idiotic things. Sure. Like chalk it up to a dime a dozen. Um, and then there's some times where I'm like, are you effing kidding? You know, so depending know. on the day, um, there are moments where my humanity outweighs uh, the divinity that exists inside of me and everyone else. Um, and I think it, it for any activist, um, for anyone who cares about anything, um, I think it is waking up and it is one day at a time, right? It's one, I'm, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to see what kind of micro dent I can make. Um, and then that self-care is a very real piece of it. Um, and I think that's something I only recently kind of stepped into with my crazy around the world trip um, was I just needed a break. I just hadn't traveled and I hadn't done anything for me. And I think I forgot along the way of like carrying the torch and wanting to make the world better and and certainly starting with my own um, that somewhere along the way I kind of lost my joy 
just for everything, for the little joy things. Joy is so important. Yeah, and I think there's a distinction between happiness and joy, right? Happiness is, to me, feels very external, and um, like red velvet cupcakes make me actually happy. Blue moon is my favorite. Like, it makes me actually happy. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of these, like, kind of fun, frivolous things uh, that can bring me happiness, and and I feel like it's tied to pleasure, but um, joy for me is an internal thing. That like nothing from the exterior can give it to me, um, and to me, it, it's really tied to purpose um, and and figuring out how are you waking up every day, and it's the the distinction between who you are and what you do, and who you are of you know I can I can be the activist that I am, I can be the founder, the CEO, or how all the different labels, the author, but am I doing it with kindness? And, 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 authenticity. Am I, and authenticity and am I doing it with humility and, and am I making time for the barista at Starbucks when I pit stop and I'm running late am I just on my phone staring down or am I taking a moment to look up in their eyes and to genuinely ask them how their day is and to wait for a response you'll be so proud of me you won't believe what I did tell me I took kind bars with me I flew out this weekend to go see my grandsons and I thought about you because I've been reading and I took kind bars and I took a whole box of them and I gave one to every TSA person that I took the time and gave them to all the TSA guys and said, I just wanted to say thank you for being here, for showing up when I know you're not getting paid. Mm. And, you know, so I thought, and they looked at me like, wow. And they said, lady, the first thing was I had the box. This was so crazy. TSA had the box in the bag and they go, you can't have food in that bag. And I said, it's not open and it's for you. Yeah. And so they said, okay, they started laughing and they took it around the thing, you know, so then they let me give them out. But anyway, of course, That's of course awesome. I had to break a rule when I was mm-hmm. doing it. But anyway, back back to the optimism thing. Yeah, I think joy for me and joy for you probably is something that you will be memorable. Mm-hmm. You know, happiness you experience and it's sort of fleeting. Sure. But joy is something that you always remember. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something I've also just made space for in my life of, like, hunting joy. I think that's a really important aspect of my life, whereas before I think I was all fight. I'm fight. I was, like, battling all the time. And um, and then I realized that the battle is important, and I, I it is just how I'm hardwired that I'm always going to be fighting um, for pushing humanity forward a little bit. Um, and I just recognized, and it was a huge epiphany, uh, because this crazy trip that I just went on, um, was that I also want to make time for joy. Did you go, was this just a fun trip? Did you go with Brad? Yeah, Brad met me for part of it, but I basically put together, um, I put together my bucket list, which is funny because bucket lists are kind of these like back burner. When I start asking people, I'm like, is anyone actually pursuing a bucket list or is that just kind of somewhere on a notes page on your phone that you never, ever look at? Um, And so I told my husband, I was like, man, I'm not going to lie. I'm getting burnt out. Like, I'm exhausted. I'd been on the road at that point over 220 days a year on the road for 13 years. And um, last year I was on the road 251 days. And I was like, it is just too, my body was saying no, everything, you know. And so I told my husband, I said, um, I just put together my bucket list. And he said, you know, came in and I, I erased everything in my office off all my whiteboards. And I just started like a maniac, just started writing down all the things that just bring me joy. That was the only only line I was feeling. And what are the things that bring me joy? Um, and or the things I've always wanted to do. And um, as I'm writing them all down, he was like, wow, there's a lot of places you want to visit. And I said, yeah, I want to do an around-the-world trip. And he was like, oh, 
okay. <laughs> and I said, for the next 100 days, this is the only thing I'm doing. This is my full-time job. And so I took a sabbatical from work, and for 100 days, all I did was literally cross off bucket lists. And that included um, Cuba and Antarctica, and then I did Japan, Bali, India, Cape Town, Rwanda, Ireland, London home. And so that was part of my bucket list. But, I mean, the thing is that it feels so um, ironic or counterintuitive for Americans to take a break because we think we're going to get behind in this invisible race that none of us are, like, actually well, you know, participating you know, you in. You know what I just did. Yeah. You know, I went around the world, too, yep. for a whole year. And and it's like the version of you on the other side of that, you're like, I didn't even know I could have more juice. Well, and you remember what you're fighting for. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just tired. And I was exhausted. And I was exhausted for a different reason because of, of an outcome that I didn't expect. Sure. And um, sometimes when you get knocked down, the only thing to do is get up and pack a suitcase. Mm, amen. That should be like the name of a book. <laughs> Maybe it will New be. tagline. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. You never, you never know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree totally. Getting to meet different people, getting to see different things and relax a little bit mm-hmm. and not have an agenda. Plus, I didn't have to be on all the time. And that's... I'm sure for you that's something because, yeah. you you know, when you walk out, you do have to be on because if you're not infectious, mm-hmm. they're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what you speak, you know, part of the things that you do. Yeah. So as far as I'm going to wrap up with lessons you've learned from your entrepreneurial journey and also what it means to have support from people like your wonderful husband, and so many mentors, so many people who are always, when I say support, you you have a lot of people that are always wishing you well. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah. You know, I mean, whether you realize it or not, almost every day, I do. I know know lots of other people that do. But talk a little bit about the importance of having support. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I think that's everything. You know, if you've been, especially as an entrepreneur, I mean, most especially as an entrepreneur, because it is a definition of faith. Right, transcendent of religion. This is you are believing in something that doesn't yet exist. Um, and every single day you're trying to, you know, you're wearing 30 different hats to try and pull <laughs> something together. You're asking people to have faith in you, in this idea, in this vision. There are no guarantees ever. Um, and so, of course, it heightens every insecurity you've ever thought you had comes out, especially in that in that world. Um, so having a community who loves you and supports you regardless of your success or failure. And I think that's something I'm really learning right now is can I be okay with who I am, Alexis Whitney Jones, regardless of the praise or the criticism? And well, having, you don't have to bat a thousand. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, and so the idea that I have a community that loves me regardless, so loves me in a state of when I'm my very best and when I'm having my worst day, um, and that they choose to show up and love me, I think that, you know, and you, you nailed it. I mean, my family is everything, you know, to me and my husband. I still have to pinch myself that I ended up with that guy. Um, and that's not even my closest friends and in my in my business mentors and you know all the people um, who, as you mentioned, I may not talk to them every day, but I energetically feel them in my corner, and that means everything. Um, as far as some of the lessons I've learned, I think a lot of it has to do with slowing down, which is very counterintuitive to my circuitry um, and to my DNA. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've recognized the power of slowing down and that in stillness is where I find my genius exists um, and my my greatest wisdom 
exists in stillness. And again, it's almost like if I have a big decision to make or I have something like my instinct is I'm going to go do three shots of espresso and I'm going to get my entire team together. We're going to whiteboard and, you know, and I'd like all of that like frenetic energy. And I think really only in the past year or so have I found um, it is always important to crowdsource right, from your kitchen cabinet, um, from the people in your lives. Um, and that group has gotten smaller and smaller. Sarah Bordeaux being one, I literally had a call with her today about an important decision that is coming up. Um, but when I used to crowdsource 17 people to say, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? Now I have like three. Um, and I don't ask them to tell me what to do or what they would even do because they're not me and they don't know every single piece of this, but I, I ask them, ask me questions that can help me find the answer that's right for me. And I think that's a really interesting distinction is to have the confidence that I know how to make the right choice for myself, for my life, for my company, for my team, that I want to have confidence that I make good choices, not always perfect, and sometimes bad choices, and sometimes choices we have to like make up for down the road, but I can have ownership over those too. But I think having... Um, Having the courage to say that um, if these people are trusting me to to guide the ship um, and to be their captain, um, then I can certainly take all their opinions. Um, but inevitably, I have to make a choice that's based off of right. The buck my stops gut. here. Yeah, and I think before I was always as a leader um, and as a founder, I was always wanting to make everyone feel so included. And looking back, I think oftentimes at the expense of my own compass of knowing what was right and making decisions that weren't necessarily in alignment with what I thought, but I was like, oh, I won't rock the boat too much because this is kind of what people want. And then later I'd be like, dang it, I knew my well, instinct said trust, that trust that was gut. not a good, yeah. you know. And so I think that idea of like getting really, really comfortable with your with the voice of your own gut. Um, and again, it's never going to prevent you from never making mistakes, but even those mistakes are clearly necessary. Um, for your personal evolution. Um, I think that's a big piece. And then the other piece I would say is um, this new revelation that if you don't have joy in your life, then what's the point? Um, and if you've lost that joy, and I certainly resonate with that, um, if you've just gotten in the grind for so long, you know, or you're, you know, in motherhood and you are just like, you don't see light at the end of the tunnel, or you're a triathlete and you're training like anything that just feels grueling, that you're just waking up and you're in it, you're in the weeds. Um, and you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't know the last time that I like genuinely felt joyful. Um, I cannot over express. That's not a selfish thing to pursue. Um, that's oxygen for our soul. And for a lot of us, we, you know, have siphoned it off um, and we're passing out in our own lives. Right. Pure, sometimes just pure exhaustion. Um, but I would say that um, the fight, the hustle, the grind, um, it's all important and necessary. Um, but let us not forget the power of joy um, and how much farther that takes us in life. I made a commitment about three years ago. I wrote it down when I was working on a particularly difficult project. And it was, I'd actually had a conversation with Roy Spence about hugs and joy and things like that. So I said, Roy, I'm going to say that I am not going to live another day of my life without a moment of joy every day. I said, so I'm going to make a commitment that if I haven't had a moment of joy, I will have one before I go to sleep every night. You know, I said, but if I have, you know, I'll write it down because I have this little book where you write down one line a day. And I usually put my moment of joy in the one line a day. And he said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, 
you know, if it gets to the end of the day and I find that I haven't had a moment of joy, I'm just going to watch some crazy videos that make me laugh. And I said that to me or watch some of those the little kid videos, oh you know, gosh. all those where they talk. Yep. I said that'll be my moment of joy for a day. And I have been really good, I have to tell you. I, I And last year is the first year I kept up with it 365 days. And I did every single day. That's amazing. So that's how we should leave it. Yes. And this has been my moment of joy today. Oh, mine too. Being able Thank to see you. you. And we'll, I'll look forward to the next, what's coming next. Yes. Um, people can get in touch with you. I'll put all the information. But AlexisJones.com. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Alexis. I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you for continuing to make this world a better place, especially for girls and for women. The View from Venus team includes me, Deborah Hamilton Lynn, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you, everyone at Founding Media, for your support. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find the show. Thanks for listening.